Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. So, um, yes, I will be um, trying to answer the same question that I tried to answer for the last 18 years since I started my lab. How do you make and maintain a self-renewing human hematopoietic stem cell? When I started working with the HSCs in Sweden in 98, we were just, let's just find the HSC cytokines so we can put it in culture and expand them. And, and uh, those who are still looking for the cytokine might be looking for a long time because we've understood that this is a much more complex process. And actually, it makes sense that uh, regulation of self renal has to be complex because HSCs has to be ready to respond to various uh, needs of the body uh, uh, and in many ways change uh, their fate decisions at least in part in a reversible fashion. And this is the only way how we can keep on mating, making a, keeping a healthy blood stem cell pool throughout our life and make all the lineages uh, as, as needed. And uh, we all know that when you put HSCs in culture, it's often a one-way street towards differentiation or death, or at least those HSC lookalikes, they don't engraft very well. At the same time, we know if we play with self-renewal, we're very easily at the, at the kind of the intersection of, of, of self-renewal or leukemic transformations. We have to be very carefully how we use this weapon. And finally, this question, this dream that we've all had, could we use uh, human ESLs or IPS cells to make uh, patient-specific or at least perfectly HLA-matched uh, HSCs uh, for therapies? But now we know that HSC development is a very complicated process, so it, it's mo- most likely not going to be easy to make this happen in culture. So if we take um, uh, first a look at of HSC development, as, as uh, Len already alluded, uh, you know, hematopoiesis in, during development happens in waves, and the HSCs are generated in the last wave. So the embryo is first very busy in trying to keep it alive by making red blood cells and these macrophages that are dooming and go- grooming uh, already uh, at the time when the HSCs are being formed. So most of these uh, findings, uh, uh, how we view developmental hematopoiesis, have been uh, done in the in the mouse, but if we look at mouse versus human developmental hematopoiesis, the basic principles that this is divided to three waves: where first you make the progenitors, starting uh, in the yolk sac, and then ultimately you make the HSCs in the AGM region. This is conserved, but if you look at the extra embryonic tissues, look completely different. So how do we know if this is conserved? Also, the length of pregnancy: mouse is three weeks, human is nine months. So it's easy to understand that kind of the requirements for the different progenitors are different. But also, another thing that many people don't even think about is if we really match the developmental stages when the mouse is being born, we are only at nine weeks of human development. So when the mouse is running around already, uh, the human is still being incubated in the womb much longer. So human fetal liver hematopoiesis happens, mouse, when it's already uh, out of the womb. So it's important, I think, to really, if we want to understand human HSC development, to, to study this in human rather than just try to extrapolate uh, solely uh, from the mouse. So um, we know that we've learned a lot of uh, important components of this process from our previous studies, key factors that regulate hematopoietic specification that send the the, uh, uh, mesoderm towards the definitive HEC fate rather than to those progenitor fates. We found some key markers how we can identify HECs during human fetal development, such as GPI-80, and this allowed us to get a closer look of the self-renewing 
doing HSC. So we've learned these pieces, but we haven't been able to uh, put the, connect the dots to really recreate this uh, process uh, in culture. We know that uh, this involves multiple tissues, multiple organs, but how exactly is this happening? So in one way, we had to just wait for technologies to develop, and uh, thank God, single-cell RNA sequencing was invented, and we were able to collaborate with our, our long-term collaborators, uh, Katja Schenkeleiden Lab in Tübingen, who had access to very early human developmental hematopoietic tissues at the stage when HSCs are being born. So we, we decided to take on uh, a, a kind of a comprehensive single-cell RNA-seq study so that we could finally ask, you know, how are the nascent HSCs different from those progenitors that are generated in those HSC-independent waves? And... Um, uh, what are the tissues that are involved in this process? We know that HECs emerge, at least some of them, if not all of them, in the AGM. But there's been hints, at least in the mouse, that the extramembranic tissues, the yolk sac and placenta, may also contain HECs. Then they go to the liver, and there in this black box, something happens that they magically become, learn all the skills that they need to do their adult jobs. And ultimately, they go to bone marrow to maintain uh, hematopoiesis. How do these different tissues contribute to this process? Um, and then last but not least, what makes the HSC-forming hemogenic endothelium unique compared to the other type of hemogenic endothelium that makes, makes the progenitors? Because we believe that it's already in this mesoform specification stage when you're setting the fate whether you are making an HSC or something else. We first looked into the AGM, and based on what we knew from our other studies of key HSC transcription factors, RUNGs, HOXA9, MLT3, MECOM, and HLF, we found the cluster that really must represent the nascent HSCs in the AGM. From here, we learned a signature that helps us identify the nascent HECs compared to the progenitors and other cells in the AGM. And we were able to narrow this to a six-gene signature that we showed that when we were at any stage of human hematopoietic ontogeny, we could distinguish HECs from progenitors by using this six-gene uh, signature. And we were able to show that at the time when HECs are in the AGM region, we can also find them in this extraembryonic yolk sac and placenta before they have seeded the liver, suggesting that the yolk sac and placenta are important component of human HSC developmental path. And uh, uh, by following these uh, six uh, key HEC genes, we could show that HEC transition from the AGM through the extramarine tissues to the fetal liver between five and six weeks of development. Six weeks onwards, we can find something that is transcriptomically an HEC, but only from eight or nine weeks onwards, they are robustly transplantable. So we wanted to understand what is really this maturation process that gives them their functional properties. So we zoomed into those highly molecular purified HECs and looked at key programs that are either downregulated or upregulated uh, during this maturation process. And we can see the downregulation of endothelial genes, proliferative genes, known fetal genes, and at the same time we can see upregulation of some key programs, most notably MHE class 2 molecules, such as HLA-DRA, here's an example, as well as PROM1 with uh, CD133 that has been used as a stemness gene in many systems. And this 
these really are upregulated at the stage when HECs become transplantable. And because they are surface markers, we can witness their upregulation also as HECs are maturing in the fetal liver and ultimately uh, in the core blood. And, and so now we have a little bit of a handle how to find the HECs, how to define their maturation state, both inside and outside. And so we're beginning to have an understanding of this process that needs to happen before you can make a functional HEC. But what about the origin of HECs? By using UMAP, we could uh, um, connect our HEC cluster to endothelium, and, and specifically arterial type endothelium. And by using the key markers of hemogenic endothelium, which means you're still endothelium, you're turning on the HEC uh, specifying factor ranks one, but you haven't turned on yet the panhematopoietic marker PTPRC, we can identify this hemogenic endothelium that is transitioning. And here shown in, in blue, we can see that it's highly HOXA patterned, which we had shown before is a key marker for the uh, definitive hematopoietic fate. We can see that hemogenic endothelium is indeed part of arterial endothelium. There's been a lot of debate about that, but not just all arterial endothelium. There are specific genes that are highly expressed uh, still in the hemogenic endothelium, but specifically in this population that we call the pre-hemogenic endothelium that may be preceding the HSC uh, 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 specification. And here I would like to highlight IL-33, LDH1A1, um, uh, as markers of the pre-hemogenic endothelium, and KCNK17, another marker of hemogenic endothelium. So this we predicted from the RNA when we went to the um, uh, human embryos and looked inside the dorsal aorta where we see these hemogenic clusters that are the proposed sites of hem hematopoietic emergence, we can find exactly the, the, uh, the transition from an IL-33 positive pre-hemogenic endothelium uh, to upregulation of KCNK17, the mark of hemogenic endothelium, and ultimately SPINK2, which is, is marking the, those cells that have already transitioned to become hematopoietic. So this was very promising, and the reviewer said, how about this gene and that gene and that gene and this gene? And I said, we're not going to be able to stain all these as proteins, but we decided we're going to give it a shot and do Visium spatial transcriptomics, and we did, and we sliced the, uh, the int uh, intact embryo to seven slices and, and did this uh, Visium, and we can here see, uh, this is the dorsal aorta, we can see the expression of IL-33 in the right places, LDH1A1 on the ventral side as an initiating retinoic acid signaling, which we now know is very important also functionally. KCNK17 is only turned on in those sections where we see visually an, an intraiotic hematopoietic cluster, as well as SPINK2, uh, which is then a, a marker of emerged uh, HSC. So now we can go back to the same data set and look at other genes, what is unique about the environment that is specifying an HSC versus uh, a different type of stroma, for example. But now I've talked about all these markers, but how do we know that they are specific to the HSC wave versus the earlier progenitor wave? So we don't get access to these very early tissues, but by looking at data uh, uh, from um, uh, uh, Zeng et al. paper from three-week human embryo and comparing our five-week human embryo hemogenic endothelium and HSCs to those very early ones, we can find that there are tissues that are that are unique uh, uh, to um, uh, that there are markers that are absolutely unique to the 
self the the definitive wave such as here shown uh, ADGRG6 uh, for example IL33 LDH1A1 as well as some key uh, HAC transcription factors that are not shared at all with the earlier wave so if we uh, now look what have we learned we've been able to uh, find uh, define the HECs as they're born in the AGM, define their endothelial precursor, follow them throughout human development, and find the key stages and markers for their maturation. So what can we now do with this? We, would, we of course, want to, uh, the field to be able to utilize and, and now ask, what are the cells that, that everybody is making in vitro? How close are we to make um, the real HEC? And there's been a tremendous improvement in the, in the field uh, through... Uh, Following these developmental cues, it's uh, uh, been possible now to create these different waves of humidopoiesis. So we collaborate with Andrew Elefanti's group, who said, we think we've made an AGM-like uh, hemogenic endothelium. Let's see what our cells look like. And we first used AI so that we could take completely hands off. And it said, yes, most of the cells that you're making really match to the AGM state HECs. And we can see all the endothelial intermediate. We have some placental HECs, but there's no nothing that matches the fetal liver stage. And when we compared our HEC maturation scorecard, we could see that these pluripotent cell-derived cells really match more closely to these very nascent HECs, and they don't upregulate these maturation markers, such as uh, uh, PROM1, uh, or HLA DRA. So we really decided that this should be now the next goal is how do we take ourselves further uh, into the, it's very promising when the in the footstep of being making a self-ring HEC, but how could we make them uh, functional uh, all the way? So Mengwei Ko, who was uh, wonderfully trained in the Dan Kampfan lab, is now uh, came to our lab to take this this challenge, and we've been working with uh, uh, Andrew Elephantis team uh, utilizing the the protocol. A very sophisticated protocol that is very highly, you know, uh, defined stages of when different uh, developmental cues are being applied. But rather than stopping right there, uh, we're going to be continuing later. And we use uh, HLF, uh, TD Tomato Reporter. We've showed before that HLF is the one marker, one transcription factor that is most specific to the undifferentiated uh, HSCs. So we can see that there's no HLF when in the during early uh, hemogenic endothelium specification when we already see CD34 and CD90, but it comes uh, expressed as HECs are emerging, and we see very nice HLF-positive populations that co-express all these key um, HSC markers. So now if we put them in the expansion culture, Mengwei showed that we actually, they are fully loaded initially. We can see this huge expansion of CD34 population, and even when we look at the HLF population. But are they still immature? We went back to our gene expression data and looked at some of these markers such as ADGRG6, uh, IL-3 receptor alpha, that are the markers of the more immature HACs, and then PROM1, which is the marker of the maturing HACs. And it's very exciting that we can see they're initially highly ADGRG6 positive, which gets downregulated as we are upregulating some PROM1 expression. So we think we are on the pathway of uh, uh, with also recapitulate HAC maturation in culture, but we're not sure yet if they are fully functional, but this is uh, then for the next talk. But we felt that it's absolutely important that we really understand better of the mechanisms that maintain uh, uh, HEC um, function as well as our, our um, key uh, intrinsic regulators of this um, maturation process. So we went back and, and looked at um, 
uh, turn back to our old friend, MLT3, which we had found previously because MLT3 expression always goes with the self-renewing cell. It always goes down when HECs differentiate or when we put them in culture. It's highly enriched in HEC, some expression in erythroid lineage. It's part of the superlongation complex and DOT1L complex, so uh, it can um, uh, regulate uh, uh, transcription at the transcription elongation step as well as maintain active uh, chromatin marks. And we showed when we knocked down MLT3, this already published, so I'm going very fast, that if you knock down MLT3, you lose all the undifferentiated cells in culture, and they don't transplant. So absolutely critical for HEC self-renewal. What about if we restore the expression that is being lost when we culture HECs? We could see that when the control HECs are running out of steam in a couple of weeks, if we maintain MLT3 expression, we can expand this immunophenotypic HEC population, and when we transplant, we could show that we could get at least over 12-fold um, expansion compared to the uncultured cells and, and more than five-fold expansion compared to the control cultured cells that uses the best conditions uh, at that time with all these new small molecules, UM171, SR1, and, uh, and they didn't transform. They were not lineage biased. They really behaved in vivo like uh, 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 real HSCs. We show that MLT3 binds to key HSC transcription factors and, and most likely through DOT1L dependent process is maintaining their expression as HSCs divide, uh, really witnessing uh, symmetric self-renewal in culture. Well, how do we know for sure the protein complexes which MLT3 works with, with its IP mass spec, Iman Faris, in our lab, and uh, in core blood HECs in culture, and showed, indeed, the interaction with the superlongation complex and DOT1L complex, and as well as some other complexes that we are currently validating. But it was still fascinating for me, like, why don't we, if you overexpress MLT3, why don't you lock it into a self-renewing state? And, uh, and that why do they still remain responsive to the microenvironmental cues? So we tried to understand this by looking into the regulatory elements for MLT3. And it was interesting when we look at the histone mark in fetal liver HECs, we found the expected uh, transcription start site. But when we looked at those uh, histone marks, it looks like there's a second transcription start site. And if you looked very closely to some random uh, browsers and things we could find, like there was some evidence maybe of a short isoform uh, of, of MLT3 that never had been published or never reported. But we could see that this second TSS was rapidly closed when HECs differentiate, and there was also an enhancer that behaved in a similar way. And uh, uh, if we look at the RNA-seq data, we have a peak here that corresponds to a potential uh, a unique um, uh, exon here that is not in the canonical uh, isoform. So this is predicted to form a protein that lacks the chromatin-binding yeast domain, but still uh, maintains these protein interaction domains. And this was fascinating for us because this is also the same portion of the gene that is part of the leukemia oncogene, the MLL-MLLT3 fusion, that can confer self-renewal to progenitors. So this was very interesting for us. We wanted to see if it's actually making a stable protein. We overexpressed MLT3 short, and we could see the protein of expected length. And as we predicted, because it's lacking the nuclear localization signal and each domain, it's not going to the nucleus, uh, it's not going to the chromatin. We see some in the nucleus, uh, but mainly it's in the, in the, in the 
cytoplasm. But it was very interesting for us, um, especially when we started looking at the expression patterns more closely. And even from the short read data, we could see that this, this exon here or this peak could really only come from the short isoform. So we could see that when HECs differentiate, they lose the short isoform even more rapidly than the long isoform, also verified by PCR. Um, and when we put HECs in culture and zoom into those that can still maintain an HEC phenotype that, that, that has some remnant long isoform left, but the short isoform is downregulated even more rapidly also in culture. So this made us very, very excited. So we said, what if we now express the short isoform? Maybe this is the isoform that expands the HECs. Maybe we always express the wrong isoform. But this wasn't the case. There was absolutely no expansion when we expressed the short isoform. Only the long isoform expanded immunophenotypic HECs when we expressed them together. The trend was the, the same, but it was suppressing the expansion by the long isoform. So we were like, okay, let's make sure that we are expressing the right thing. If you look very carefully, there's actually sometimes there's two two peaks uh, here. So we went back and we said, oh, interesting. There are maybe two different subvariants of the short isoform that may have a one or two of these non-coding exons in the 5 prime UTFR. We verified this by, by a 5 prime race. But when we overexpressed them, they made the same protein as predicted. But it was still a little bit puzzling. If you pull the ensemble today, there's 10 isoforms for MLT3. And we're like, oh, you know, we thought that there are two, <laughs> there's 10. So we did pack bio. This is really data from last week. We're super excited. And we really were able to witness that everything that we kind of indirectly put together is true. The main isoform is the long isoform. We have two subvariants of the short isoform. And it's uh, in, in fetal liver, we have less of the short. And we have a little bit more uh, of, the, of these two subvariants in the cord blood. But now we can at least be comfortable, you know, six years later, that we have actually been studying isoforms that really are the main isoforms um, in real life. So what if we knock them down? We did isoform-specific knockdowns using lentiviral shRNA. And the, the long isoform, we already knew what to expect. Uh, you lose the undifferentiated HACs. We actually see this uh, premature appearance of 38 cells in culture, and then the premature loss of the undifferentiated HACs. When we knock down the short isoform using two different shRNAs, we actually didn't see a loss of HSCs. We saw the opposite. There was actually more of these EPCR-positive candidate HSCs initially. And we did knocked out both isoforms. It was a hybrid phenotype, initially mimicking the short isoform uh, loss and then ultimately mimicking the long isoform loss. Uh, but so this culture gave us an idea that maybe these are doing uh, uh, something very different, uh, these two different isoforms. But when we transplanted them to immunodeficient mice, the long isoform knockdowns didn't transplant at all, but also the short isoform knockdowns that looked like we're expanding better in culture, they also were not able to engraft properly. So really showing that, um, uh, that this is a, a critical um, uh, critical um, that both isoforms are critical for HSCs. So uh, quickly to look at their um, uh, what are these isoforms regulating? We showed that they um, 
when we look at uh, the programs, uh, there are many key uh, HSC programs such as uh, protein synthesis and transcription that are really the targets of the long isoform, and they are regulating opposing directions with the short isoform. Whereas we found programs that seem to be repressed by the long isoform, such as splicing and mitochondrial metabolism, that are going the opposite direction when we lose the short isoform. And uh, here are individual examples, and we can see that they are direct targets of the long isoform, really showing that that the, we are both looking at activating and repressive genes that are regulated in opposing directions. When we looked at during development, we can see that um, MLT3 is expressed already in hemogenic endothelium, but there is no short isoform. It comes expressed later uh, during development. So what is it doing during development? Uh, we quickly, uh, I'm going to go through this data very quickly. We showed that also when we ex- overexpress it uh, at the fetal liver stage, we see this, this opposing uh, regulation between the long and short isoforms. And we identified several interesting candidates, which I'm going to mention this one gene, IGFPP2. It's a known uh, fetal gene uh, that is expressed in highly proliferative tissues, becomes reactivated in cancer, is already down in, in the fetal liver HECs when they are mature, but gets reactivated in culture. When you put HECs in culture, there's this rejuvenating signal, and the long isoform is boosting it, whereas the short isoform is repressing it. And we see the opposite when we look back into the, uh, the knockdown data, suggesting that, that maybe these isoforms are involved in the shift from the highly proliferative fetal stage to a more homeostatic state. And when we knocked down IGFPP2, we couldn't see any HSC expansion culture, and we showed that this was uh, when we overexpressed MLT3 uh, and knocked down IGFPP2, we didn't see the positive effects of MLT3, really showing that, that this is a one mechanism by which the MLT3 long uh, boosts this uh, highly proliferative, more fetal-like stage, whereas the MLT3 short is maybe enabling them to uh, function more in, in a homeostatic manner. So, final question. So, why does the long isoform overexpression alone works uh, if you need both of them? When you look at it, the long isoform is actually binding also to its own TSS as well as to the TSS of the short isoform. And we see this specifically when we are overexpressing the long isoform. So, when you're overexpressing the long, you actually get the whole family. Uh, uh, to work together uh, for the same price. And we think that this is really the reason why the overexpression of the long works, because you still have a foot in the door to maintain the expression of the short isoform, and this is the only way why we can have a fully functional transplantable uh, HSCs. And uh, so to summarize, we formed that, uh, that there's not only a one, but a two uh, main I- isoforms of MLT3 that are critical for HSC development and, uh, and maintenance. And the long isoform promotes specification and expansion. The short isoforms is one of the key factors that uh, facilitates this transition to a more homeostatic state where HACs can actually engraft. They're both very vulnerable in culture, uh, but when you overexpress the long isoform, you not only restore the long isoform expression, but also keep the foot in the door for the short isoform being there so that HACs can transplant. So I think about them as the gas and the brakes, you have a car. You don't just want to have a car that has gas. You need the brakes to know when to turn and turn safely. So uh, I'm thinking about 
MLT3 not as a gene, but as a, I call it a stemness operating system. How about that? And uh, where we can, these two isoforms are enabling HSCs to do these developmental transitions as well as responding, at least in part, irreversible irre uh, fashion to the uh, key uh, physiological uh, cues. So, uh, boom, 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 boom. No time to show anything about that, but definitely want to show my acknowledgement lights. So many people to thank. Uh, I didn't know any of this. Uh, Vincenzo Calvanese started all the MLT3 studies in our lab. Anastasia Bevelina, who just defended her thesis, was uh, took over the short isoform project. Uh, Vincenzo and, and Sandra did the single cell RNA-seq. Iman did the MLT3 mass spec. Um, and, and many collaborators to thank for Mengwei Ko is now working on our um, uh, pluripotent cells, and of course, the next question is how, what happens if we can restore fully those both isoforms also during our pluripotent stem cell uh, maturation? So that will be for the next one. So if there's any time, I would be happy to take questions. Thanks, Anna, for another terrific talk. When you um, alter the relative expression of the short and long mm -hmm. isoform, do you affect overall translational output? In translational activity, have you measured that? So, uh, you know, I know we've talked about with you like many times. We should really do the OP Pure experiment. We haven't done it yet. Uh, so, right now, uh, uh, we, we would predict that it does, uh, but, but also uh, why we haven't done it because we. I don't anymore think about that it's, it's, it's one target gene or, or one thing. Like it's really, uh, I think that both of these isoforms, they, they have the ability to modulate these key programs, uh, not just the one, you know, but I think the protein synthesis is going to be one key component. And we see it also that was uh, uh, in this developmental transition. You've shown very nicely that the fetal HECs have much higher protein synthesis than the homeostatic ones. So we think that these isoforms really are, uh, but that will be then hopefully for the, for the next paper to really dissect in more detail. And just, so we should definitely do the experiment. Yeah. <laughs> but also, um, is the relative translational efficiency of each isoform different? Have you measured that at all? Oh. And, and is there like a, does that create like a circuit and a feedback where it's regulated at the level of translation to control? Okay, so now you're asking, so translation control of the isoform. So here is... Currently, we cannot, uh, uh, we don't have an easy way to look at the short, the native short uh, um, uh, MLT3S. We are uh, looking into generating uh, pluripotent cell lines, you know, where we could hopefully tag if we can still maintain their intact function, that we could actually look at the native um, proteins uh, and their, uh, their protein levels in, in that sense. But currently, we don't have an easy way to, uh, to really study that, but, uh, but definitely interesting to, to think about. I have an idea for that. Protein simple, we've got it in the lab. So you could do it by PI. The, the, the two short isoforms and the long probably have a different isoelectric focusing point. Uh, but my question was more about why you get the long versus short, because we see this splice isoform mm -hmm, switching mm -hmm. for other genes. Have you looked at MBNL1 expression, MBNL3 or RBFOX2? So there are certain genes when you lose yep. them, you knock them down, you revert to an embryonic transcriptional or mm -hmm. embryonic splicing program, which yep. is kind of what it looks like there with your MLLT and actually MBNL1 has been implicated in MLL rearranged leukemia, mm -hmm. so slightly different 
but yep. I'm just wondering if this is what you're really looking at. So the very world. interesting, although these two major isoforms do come from a two different transcription start sites, so we think that they are kind of, uh, you know, we have the, uh, the, the long that is first activated, and then the short has its own TSS, its own regulatory uh, also enhancers, which I didn't show yet. They are already primed uh, before it's on, so the hemogenic endothelium, they already know that they want to turn it on, but there's some different trigger that turns it on. But speaking of splicing, there also we, all, we do see these two different subvariants of the short that don't change the protein but may change something else for the RNA. So there is also alternative splicing that is happening. And we have some evidence that there may be some more rare variants, at least during development, where there may be some exon skipping that is happening that they may modulate the function. So we want to, we need to look at now in the adult and aging and mobilization and all these situations, like if these subvariants become more, more common, but, but definitely want to look into splicing and, and RNA processing. So let's talk more. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to remember, which is the fusion protein? Is it MLL, T3, ENL? So, so the fusion protein where MLT3, also known as AF9, is involved, so it's MLL, MLT3. So MLL binds chromatin, and MLT3 brings these protein uh, partners. Yeah, so those cells are malignant at the monocyte lineage, yep. not at the HSC mm-hmm, lineage, mm-hmm. even if we put it into HSC. Yep. So you think it is the partner that, that changes that? Uh, state at which it can be transformed? So I think uh, there's a few things, you know, the reviews were very like, are you sure you're not getting leukemia? Are you sure you're not I'm, like, I'm sorry I don't get leukemia. But, but also, uh, it, it only goes to the HEC genes if they are already, the TSS is open. So if you put it to a cell where those HEC regulatory genes are not open, it's, it's not a pioneer factor. It's only a maintenance guy. So that's a one important thing, whereas when the fusion gene MLL1 is going and making its own rule where to bind and what to bind. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing, thing about uh, leukemia in, in HECs, HECs express the short isoform also. So if it can give the breaks to the long isoform, can it also do give breaks to the leukemia fusion protein? And this is one of the things we want to be uh, testing now in the future. 